morning. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and I want us to read verse 10 and 11. This is God's word to us all. Listen carefully as we read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let me read again verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of of the devil. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the amazing privilege that we have this morning to open the living word. And Father, it's so easy for us to forget that this is not just any book, but that this book has been inspired by you. It is your very word. And Father, I pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear your perfect, sufficient, and powerful word this morning. And Father, we do pray for those uh, in our midst who are struggling this morning through the pain and the sorrow of losing a loved one. And I pray, Lord, that you will be their comfort today. And even as we consider something like the schemes of the devil, I pray, Lord, that uh, through this teaching, you will remind us all that ultimately our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all these things we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. The schemes of the devil. Exciting, isn't it? What a title. Only a week ago, many people celebrate it. Valentine's Day, and I remember thinking, wow, I, I really don't like Cupid. I'm not a fan. Just the idea of a baby-looking angel with wings, holding a bow, and shooting arrows at hearts annoys me. I take it personal. That little angel has uh, schemes of the devil written all over. I really hope angels don't know how people generally think of them, how offensive that would be. I tell you right now that if an angel actually appeared to you in your room, you would not think of Valentine's. You would play dead. There's nothing cute about them. They are messengers and warriors of God. They are not floating out there helping people fall in love. They are ministers of God who are willing and able to fulfill his will to perfection. The only exceptions to these, of course, are those we call demons, along with their leader, Satan, who is also known as the prince of the power of the air, as Paul referred to him, 
in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. So beginning today and for the next few Sundays, the Apostle Paul will give us a true picture of these evil beings and how they operate in the world. Now, the apostle begins in verse 11, addressing the armor of God. However, since that issue will eventually consume most of our thinking in the next few weeks, I will limit our considerations for this morning to one particular reality presented here, which I have already mentioned in connection to Cupid, namely the schemes of the devil. Sounds dreamy, doesn't it? I have three main questions to ask of our verse this morning. Here's the first question. What are the schemes of the devil? The second main question will be, how does Satan apply his schemes? And number three, what is our duty? Those are the three questions. We will identify the schemes of the devil. Then we will look at Satan's methodology and then briefly consider what our calling is in all this as believers. So let's consider the first question. What are the schemes of the devil? The word schemes comes from the Greek word methodea. Does it sound familiar? Methodea. Schemes is another word for satanic methods. Methods. What is interesting about that word is that it is a compound word, meaning it's made up of two other words that were put together. The first word is meta. Meta, which can either mean with, after, behind, or against. And the Greek word for uh, travel or journey. And these two words were put together. And when you put them together, you get the sense of something that is well-planned. Well-planned. Therefore, the word schemes has the sense of craftiness. A process that is well thought out. Behind the word schemes lies the idea of premeditation. Premeditation. Now, Paul already hinted at this when he described Satan in chapter 2, verse 2, as the spirit that is now at work. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan works at his evil. He works at his evil craft. Now, this immediately tells us a few things about Satan. First, his evil is never accidental, but always intentional. He's always planning and looking for ways to attack the people of God, the church. Satan is consumed with evil plotting against Christians. Satan cannot control his hatred against the people of God. He is consumed with a desire to steal, kill, and destroy. The second thing we learn about Satan, and here's the good news, is that Satan is neither omnipotent nor sovereign. The fact that he has to plan and plot and make evil calculations lets us know that Satan cannot accomplish all that he sets out to do. So let us be clear on this from the beginning. Satan is powerful, but he is not all powerful. Satan is intelligent, but he is not all-knowing and all-wise. Those attributes belong exclusively to our triune God. Satan, on the other hand, is and always will be subject to the omnipotence and the sovereignty of God. He is a creature. He has a beginning. He is not free to do what he pleases, but only that which the omnipotent and sovereign hand of God will allow him to do but the question still 
remains. What are the schemes of Satan? Well, in a general sense, and if Satan could have it his way, he would want one main thing from you and I. We learn what that is from the book of Job. Satan appeared before God twice in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Job. And in both instances, you will remember, Satan exposed his number one evil intention for humanity. This is what Satan said to God twice concerning Job. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, meaning Job, and he will do what? And he will curse you to your face. And then again, stretch out your hand, Satan telling God, and touch his bone and his flesh. And once again, he will curse you to your face. Misery loves company. Someone said evil loves evil. At bottom, at bottom, Satan hates God and he has spent his entire existence as the quintessential hater and cursor of God. And he wants you and I to do the same. In fact, and sadly enough, Job's wife fell for it, didn't she? She fell for it. And in what I consider to be one of the least romantic scenes I've ever witnessed between a husband and a wife, she counseled Job with these words. Job, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. How about that for a Valentine's Day card? <laughs> Honey, here's what I think you should do. In an ultimate sense, this is our enemy's never satisfied, ever growing desire. He wants people to curse God to his face. That's both the motivation and the purpose of all his evil schemes, the hatred of God. And he will spend the rest of eternity in hell, hating God. This is what's behind the word stand that Paul mentions several times. Because Satan wants you to fall. And the ultimate fall is to turn against God in hatred. But the schemes of the devil, or as we could call them, satanic methods, take on very specific forms. They are not random. In fact, the craftiness of Satan's schemes tell us that they are specific in nature. By the way, Satan has been perfecting his evil craft for thousands of years, which is seen in the incredible amount of speculation that's out there concerning evil schemes. I remember during one of our trips to Guatemala, we went through a town in which they were doing their annual burning of the devil to drive away evil spirits and influences. They were literally burning what looked like a devil pinata. In all honesty, part of me wishes that it was that easy. Just burn something. But I can guarantee you that if, if those people knew what the devil is really up to, they would have to rethink their traditions. 
It is not doing them any good at all. In fact, the event itself, the burning of that devil figure is nothing more than one of the many manifestations of the fact that Satan is in fact a very skillful and effective schemer of evil. He has successfully deceived many. Paradoxically, in their effort to get rid of the devil's schemes, they were actually participating in them. Well, then how do we know what the schemes really are? I keep going around in circles, huh? Let's deal with a question. How do we know what the schemes are? Rather than speculate, there's really one thing we can do, only one thing we can do to find out what these schemes are. Let's look again at verse 11. And please notice what Paul is telling us in this verse. Pay attention. If you pay enough attention, you will know what the schemes are. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Believe it or not, Paul just gave us the answer. Did you see it? First, Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Second, he explains the purpose. What is the purpose? So that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. Do you see it now? If not, let me help you. How do we stand against the schemes of the devil? By putting on the whole armor of God. What then are the schemes of the devil? Well, based on this verse alone, we can know that the schemes of the devil are directly related to the protection provided for us by the armor. Do you see it? Do you see where I'm going? Let me put it another way. Since our protection against these satanic schemes is the armor of God, then the schemes of the devil must have something to do with each of the pieces of the armor of God. Do you see it now? Therefore, the schemes of the devil have to do with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the word of God. There you have it. The schemes of the devil are, in a primary sense, attacks on each of these realities. He hates all of them. Therefore, he schemes against them. In the perverted mind of Satan, each of these realities is a target, and he spends his entire existence plotting against them. So without too much dogmatism, we could even put a number to this. There are basically six general schemes at which Satan works without ceasing. And you can be sure that everything Satan does in his miserable existence is going to be in some way and somehow related to one or all of these six realities. This is what he's doing in the world. These are the realities he hates, but here's a brief, but very important follow-up question for us to consider. Why should we care? Thomas Brooks said, and I quote, Christ, the scripture, your own hearts and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied, end quote. Why? Well, think of war. Let's use that as an analogy. 
I can guarantee you that in any war, in any battle, one of the essential components of victory is the knowledge of where the enemy intends to attack next. If you are an army general and you have good intelligence feeding you good information about what could be most likely the next place the enemy will hit, then you have the upper hand for the next encounter. And you will know where to position your soldiers and your officers when the moment comes. You will be ready to respond. On the other hand, not knowing these things can prove devastating for any military conflict. The same is true when it comes to the spiritual warfare. Satan spends his days scheming against the Christian and the church. And if you and I will be effective in our defense and offense, you must know what his desired targets are. This is, this is a must for any strong Christian. Now, thankfully, we already know the schemes of the devil. We know what they are. What I mean is this. The word of God is telling us where to look. It's telling us where to look. And now that we know the realities that Satan seeks to attack and destroy, namely truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God, we can ask more specific questions. So here's the, the second main question we have for today. How does Satan apply his schemes? And you can follow along in your notes if you so desire. Now that we know the general schemes of Satan, we can ask specific questions about his demonic methods. Now we can take a look at his evil methodology. Going back to the analogy of war, it is one thing to know where the enemy will strike next. This is essential and critical information. But it is another thing to know how the enemy will strike. The where of the attack is important, but the how is equally important. Here, in this question, the commander wrestles with specific issues, such as will the attack be by airplane or on foot or a combination of both? Are they coming from the north, the south, the east, the west? What weapons do they have? These are specific questions that any good commander would ask in times of war. Christians must ask similar questions in the midst of spiritual warfare. We know Satan hates six specific realities of Christianity, and we need to know what those are, so I will keep mentioning them. Truth. He hates truth. He hates righteousness. He hates the gospel of peace. He hates faith. He hates salvation, and he hates the word of God. We know he will seek to invade those realms and cause harm, and this is critical information, but how will he attack? What are his methods of war? I have a series of questions and answers that might help us gain a, a better grasp of Satan's methodology. And this is a brief introduction to the armor of God. So here's question number one. How does the devil attack the truth? How does the devil attack the truth? Here's the answer, at least in a general way. He confuses it's absoluteness with relativistic ideas. He confuses its absoluteness with relativistic ideas. Do you remember when our Lord Jesus spoke of Satan in John chapter 8? His main description of Satan and his wickedness was this. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That is how Jesus described Satan, the father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Now, we need to be careful here, however, for even though Satan doesn't have the truth and he is a liar, he is a very intelligent liar. Therefore, his tactic tactic is not so much to speak flat out lies all the time, but to mix the absolute with relativism. He sows the seed of doubt in the ground of certainty. That is what he loves to do. He sows the seed of doubt in the ground of certainty. This is why the Lord Jesus said, when he lies, implying that Satan knows better than to simply speak obvious falsehoods all the time. He knows better than that. Herein lies the reason why in the account of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Moses describes the serpent as more crafty than any other beast. This brings us back to the word schemes. Satan is never random at his evil. And when it comes to his schemes regarding truth, he is crafty. He gives it careful thought. He doesn't always lie directly, but will simply ask questions such as, did God actually say? Or he will inspire doubtful questions such as the one that came from Pilate's lips. What is truth? kind of a postmodern question, even back then. My brothers and sisters, we are people of the truth. We are people of the truth. So here's a general but relevant word of caution. Be careful, and this applies to all of us Christians, be careful with the normalization of false ideas propagated by the culture. But especially be careful when those ideas are beginning to be normalized and internalized within your own mind. Do not be deceived. Truth will always matter. In fact, truth is so precious, it's worth dying for. This is one of Satan's main methods of war, the normalization of relativism. He will relativize everything and fight against the absolute nature of truth. Is marriage between one man and one woman only? Yes. Guess what the war is right now? Well, that's debatable. It never will be. Never will be. Question number two. How does the devil attack righteousness? This is the second realm that he hates. He hates truth, but he also hates righteousness. Well, the answer is this. He pollutes its purity with various temptations. We need to be clear on this, brothers and sisters. Satan hates righteousness. And he stands as as a supreme example of unrighteousness. And I believe this word has the sense of holiness embedded in it. In other words, and based on the surrounding context, I believe what Paul has in mind with the word righteousness is primarily sanctification, meaning truth applied to the heart and life. Whereas God is committed 
to your sanctification. Satan is committed to your spiritual defilement. Satan hates the progress of holiness in the Christian, which is very revealing, isn't it? It is very revealing. It makes you realize that Satan's main objective is for you to lose sight of the primary goal of the Christian life, which is that you become like the Lord Jesus. Not that you win arguments. Isn't that important? Listen to this. Listen to this. When you forget that your enemy is not the brother or sister that sinned against you, but the sinful anger and wrath with which you respond to the offense, you may be sure that behind that is Satan. He hates righteousness. Question number three. How does the devil attack the gospel of peace? How does the devil attack the gospel of peace? Here's the answer. He corrupts its integrity with subtle errors. I can hardly wait for us to get to this particular issue when we start dealing with the armor of God in more detail in the weeks ahead. Brothers and sisters, if there is anything that is under attack today is precisely the gospel of peace. Satan has been very busy seeking to infuse subtle yet very serious errors into the integrity of the gospel. How do I know this? One word, one word. I get it from one single word. Notice please how Paul doesn't just say the gospel, but he adds the gospel of peace. Isn't that a big clue as to what Satan has been up to in these last days? It seems like many, even within broad evangelicalism, have lost sight of the fact that one of the main attributes of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that it brings peace, not conflict. Beware, therefore, of any narrative promoted by the culture or within any church that breeds struggle and conflict between people. You may be sure that it doesn't come from the gospel of peace, but from Satan. Question number four, how does the devil attack the faith? How does the devil attack the faith? Here's the answer. He weakens its strength with many doubts. Look at verse 16 once again with me of chapter 6. Listen to how Paul speaks of faith. He said this, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Did you, did you get that? Isn't it at least a tad interesting that the main symbol for Valentine's Day, you know where I'm going with this? It's a flying angelic baby shooting arrows at the heart. I'm telling you, I don't like that thing. <laughs> Consider this. 
There is only one angelic being shooting flaming darts at our hearts. His name is Satan, the enemy of our souls. Not only that, but the Bible also says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Cupid, anyone? We can do this all day, but Satan hates faith. It is, after all, God's chosen instrument by which he brings about our salvation through union with Christ. It is our shield. But here's something for you to ponder upon a bit longer later on. Obviously, Satan has faith, right? How couldn't he have faith? He, along with demons, have actual knowledge of the existence of God. Satan does know very well that God exists. Isn't that what faith is? Simply to believe that God exists? We will deal with that question when the time comes. Question number five, how does the devil attack salvation? How does the devil attack salvation? How does he pretend or, or seeks to enter that realm? Here's the question. He diminishes, he diminishes its hopefulness, hopefulness with great discouragements. Some, some in our congregation this morning need to be well aware of this particular satanic method. For some of us are more vulnerable today to discouragement. This is a real threat. And I am being intentional with the word hope. Brothers and sisters, salvation is about final hope. Consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 where Paul said, for a helmet, put on the hope of salvation. The what? The hope of salvation. Consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see how both Paul and Peter make a direct connection between hope and the mind? This is why Paul uses the analogy of the helmet because you wear it on your head. It is a reference to the mind. What these verses are telling us is that the issue of hope as it relates to our final salvation is primarily an issue of the mind. And when it comes to hopelessness associated with our future salvation, we know that it comes from satanic attacks primarily on our thoughts, discouraging thoughts. And therefore, we need to remember and remind ourselves that we are indeed, as we were singing together a few minutes ago, that we are people of the risen king. And number six, how does the devil attack the word of God? which is the sword of the spirit. Well, he challenges its authority with false accusations. The Bible is too old. The Bible is just too ancient. Therefore it is irrelevant bound to its own time no longer needed since it is unable to speak to our contemporary needs. Moreover, we are too modern, too advanced, too sophisticated to pay attention to ancient ideas. We need to move on. 
I can guarantee you that if you are one to pay close and constant attention to everything that's taking place around us with the homosexual revolution, gender fluidity conversations, political changes, social movements, etc., you may be tempted to think at some point, I wonder if I'm just stuck in the past. I wonder if I'm just following the wrong path by paying attention to an ancient book. Since the beginning, Satan has been saying, what if? What if God is really a moral monster that is seeking to keep you bound to a moral standard that doesn't fit with your own? What if this is all a strategy to keep you frustrated for the rest of your life? What if the Bible is just a book that's standing in the way between you and your real happiness? What if all religions are the same and this is just another book? I am sure most of us have seen or are seeing people who have literally walked away from God and his word or are walking in absolute mess because they have given up on or never believed in the supremacy and the authority of God's word. And you and I are not exceptions to that possibility. Satan is, after all, a very effective deceiver. So there you have it. You have a general view of the schemes of the devil in very specific terms. These are the areas which he hates, realities of Christianity. And you also have an idea of what his methods are. And so the final question is, what is our duty? What is our duty? What is our responsibility? Verse 11 gives us two calls to action. He says, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against. Put on, stand against. I, I want to finish by pointing out one aspect of the grammar of these two verbs. Both are written in a tense of the Greek language called the aorist. This particular tense is very difficult to explain or understand, but the gist of it is that the emphasis is not on time, meaning it is not really concerned with past, present, and or future. In other words, when a verb is written in the aorist tense, you can't really dogmatically attach a specific time to it because time is always secondary for this particular verb tense. One Greek scholar, Bill Mounds, pointed out that when the father spoke of his son, the Lord Jesus, after his baptism, he spoke in the aorist tense when he said this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well pleased. I am well pleased. He spoke in the aorist tense. The aorist means that the father was not confining his pleasure on the son within a certain time frame, either past, present, or future. Rather, the father is permanently pleased with the son without regard to either past, present, or future. When we apply this insight to our text, it becomes clear that our duty to put on the whole armor of God and to stand against the schemes of the devil is not a one-time action. Rather, it is the very sphere in which we must live our lives. It never stops. Because these verbs are written in the aorist tense, 
We must put on the armor of God and stand against the schemes of the devil within the unending succession of past, present, and future. This is what we do. Therefore, my Christian brother and sister, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God must be your constant preoccupation as a Christian. You and I don't get a break. This will become clear next week as we consider verse 12. I hope you will be here for that. Just two very brief points of application. Number one, this is important. Pray for us. And for us, I mean your elders. Pray for your elders that we don't lose sight of these realities as we labor to watch over your souls. Brothers and sisters, you need for your elders, those who are over you in the Lord, to remain strong in the truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. These are very confusing times. These are dangerous times. Pray, pray for your elders. And number two, obviously, pray for your own souls that you remain firm in times of deep confusion and discouragement. As you will soon find out in the next few weeks, all of this, all of this is brought together by prayer and never apart from praying. Speaking of which, let us pray together then. Father, we thank you that even though the enemy is strong and powerful, our ultimate hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life we could not live, who died the death that we should have died under your wrath and who rose again to a new life, who ascended into heaven sat at your right hand and now intercedes for us and will one day return for his people. And so, Father, as we consider together the schemes of Satan to make us fall, help us never to lose sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the midst of the battle, help us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so, Father, as we fight for the truth and for our own holiness and for the gospel of peace and for the word of God. And as we stand before the world to be faithful to your truth, Father, give us the strength of your spirit and keep our eyes where Christ is. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.